You are live with Get Connected. Mike Agarbo here in studio. We are Canada's number one tech radio show. I've got my good friend Carmi Levy with me today. and We've got a great program. Lots to talk about in the tech world. Uh, we will be doing a bit of a, a Twitter update, or I guess it's called X now. A lot of... Uh, uh, new updates there, and uh, we're going to tell you how much Twitter is worth now. It was worth $44 billion, but we'll tell you how much it's uh, worth today. We'll also be talking about uh, cybercrime. Uh, cybercrime is up 600% since the beginning of the pandemic. And uh, we're going to talk about it as it relates to small businesses, whether you're a one-man consultant or you've got 50 employees. How to protect your small business from being targeted by cybercrime. And we're also, also going to talk about WeChat. Uh, this is a uh, uh, an app, a Chinese app, a very, very popular, uh, obviously over in Asia, but around the world. It looks like the Canadian government uh, is going to ban it on uh, government uh, devices. And we'll tell you what that uh, means uh, as well. But Carmi, let's get into some of the, uh, the tech news. Uh, an Apple announcement, kind of uh, a late last minute one uh, happened uh, on Monday night, which was kind of weird in itself. Uh, five o'clock uh, out west here and eight o'clock out east. Uh, it's kind of unusual, isn't it? It kind of is. It's definitely not prime time, you know, tra- traditional prime time middle of the day that Apple usually schedules its announcements. Um, but I think it sort of shows that, you know, this dealt with, this was about Macs. It was about the processors, the M3s that power those Macs. Uh, and so I think it's evidence that the world, or Apple's world at least, no longer revolves around its laptop computers. The The company that we used to, to, to refer to as the Macintosh company is no longer dependent on its laptops. It is now a tangential business, a side business. And so all the attention goes to the iPhone and everything that revolves around that constellation, and the Mac kind of gets a bit of a sideline, you know, an evening a few weeks later, uh, if anyone's paying attention. And it's kind of sad, I've been using Mac since the beginning, but at the same time, the world changes. The PC no longer leads, now it's the smartphone, uh, and Apple is simply following convention and scheduling itself accordingly. So they uh, announced uh, some new MacBooks, their their laptop, and uh, some new iMacs. Uh, But I guess the big story, Carmi, would be that uh, they've um, announced uh, their new chips. Uh, They call them uh, M3s. There's uh, three variants uh, of them. And uh, this is, uh, again, a continued uh, evolution of their own silicon chips. They're not using Intel chips uh, anymore. Uh, Any surprise about the, uh, the power of these chips? Uh, None whatsoever. I mean, it's an evolutionary step above the M2s that they ostensibly replace. I think we kind of expected this. And so we are seeing some very notable, if you're coming from an M2, you may not notice it in all workflows, but certainly if you're coming from an M1, or as the company likes to say, if you're still holding on to one of those last Intel powered Macs, you're going to notice a huge difference in terms of workflow, especially you know when you're editing video, editing photos, doing multimedia, process-intensive, graphic-intensive uh, activities that are also including gaming verbiage in their PR speak right now, which Apple has never really talked about their machines as applicable for gaming. The fact that they're mentioning it up front, I think, is notable. Um, you know, so no surprise here, but you know, it continues what I think is probably the biggest story of of Apple this decade. And, and likely the one that doesn't get a whole lot of press. 
is that you know Apple switched from Intel to its own silicone, the M series of processors. Uh, and with the M3, they're moving to what's known as a three nanometer process, which is, uh, first of all, it's a generation ahead of pretty much anyone else on the market. It allows their processors to be more power powerful, run cooler, uh, and stretch the battery even further. It is a significant jump. Uh, and now it's up to the industry to follow. And so, you know, this is, you know, if you're buying a machine uh, and everything else is equal, the M3 right now is the processor. That family uh, is now the one that you want to build your architecture around. And frankly, that's what jumps out at it be here uh, more so than a new machine or, you know, a new machine and new colors. You know, it's that you can buy your MacBook Pro in space black. That sounds great. But the fact that it's powered by an M3 or an M3 Pro or an M3 Max um, and it gives you orders of magnitude more power than probably the Intel powered Mac that you're replacing it with, uh, I think is pretty impressive. And frankly, that's a lot more notable uh, than any of the other stuff that we're going to be seeing in the trades this week. Should Intel be worried about this? I mean, during the uh, the presentation, they kept, uh, you know, referring, you know, back to like you were saying, how much faster and how much less power uh, these new new chips uh, use than uh, their Intel, uh, I guess, uh, versions. Uh, absolutely, and but although I think Intel should have been worried right from the moment Apple decided it was going to get off of Intel architecture entirely a few years back, uh, and so this continues that story, uh, but it stretches the gap between Apple Silicon and Intel Silicon that much further. Not only can Apple no longer sell uh, Intel-based processors to, uh, can Intel no longer sell its processors to what was once its largest customer, Apple, and its most uh, globally visible customer, uh, but now it finds itself trailing. Just just in terms of the overall efficiency of its architecture uh, and its uh, its marketing and PR teams have to come up with talking points to counter that. Um, but it's a it's it's a very difficult story to tell. And unfortunately, based on Intel's performance over the last few years, uh, the company is is no longer kind of at the top of its game as it once was. Uh, and Intel is in the very uncomfortable position of playing catch up right now, not only to Apple, but to a resurgent arm. Um, you know, there are other architectures that are showing that Intel's you know, traditional approach to architecting chips and processors and graphic processing units uh, simply doesn't hold water in the new in the new millennium. And uh, and the M3's introduction, I think, is another example of that. And it really does show that Intel's got to get got got to find some way to get its mojo back back because right now, clearly, it, it, the momentum is not with uh, the one-time leader of the processor market. Continue on the uh, the Apple theme. Uh, it was. Uh, kind of released this week how much uh, Google has paid uh, Apple to be their default search engine uh, on uh, Apple devices. And this isn't a small number. Uh, no, uh, $26.3 billion, that's U.S. dollars, uh, in 2021 uh, to companies like Apple in order for them to have the Google search engine as the default on uh, iPhones, other kinds of phones, browsers. Um, and this is important because when you when you get a, a phone, for example, most of us will not go into the settings to change the default search engine. Uh, you know, it's nope. there. We can do it if we want to. But, you know, ask all your friends. Chances are they're all going to look at you and shrug their shoulders and not know what you're talking about. Um, so having that position as the default search engine means that you then get a cut of all the advertising revenue that flows through that device going forward. It's, it's the high ground. It's like the prime real estate 
estate. It's 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 you know it's it's Boardwalk and Park Place on on the Monopoly board. And if you own that, everyone else is going to have to pay you. Um, it's part of and you know we're we're learning this because Google is of course on trial for antitrust in the U.S. The Department of Justice has launched this suit against Google, charging that it's used its position to dominate the market and push out competitors. And this is part of that argument is that they you know they paid huge amounts of money uh, to secure their position as the singular search player on pretty much every device and browser that you and I would use. Uh, and then it made it not it made it very difficult for others, for other competitors to wedge their way in. The company, of course, denies that. The the trial continues, but the fact that they would pay $26 billion, which is a huge amount of money, uh, you know, I mean, you know, by any definition, uh, means that they take it seriously and they don't want to get run over in the process. And that's really what it's all about, is they will keep paying and paying in order to own that prime real estate to the exclusion of everyone else. Again, I'm not a lawyer, uh, but, you know, my understanding of the term monopoly, I think we're in the same ballpark here. Let's move on to driverless uh, cars. I've talked about uh, this in, in previous episodes. Uh, one of the companies, uh, it's owned by GM, it's called Cruise. Uh, they've been testing driverless taxis uh, in California. It looks like uh, they have lost their license or it's been suspended uh, because of a uh, an accident in San Francisco in early October where uh, a cruise taxi struck and dragged a pedestrian. Yeah, uh, uh, you know, way down the street, about 20 meters down the street. Uh, oh uh, and uh, exactly. And you can you imagine being in an accident and there's no driver behind the wheel? And that's exactly what happened here. Now, there are, uh, you know, factors there that explain that the technology was not entirely at fault. The pedestrian was jaywalking, ran across uh, the intersection on a red, was actually hit by a, a, a conventional vehicle driven by a motorist who was not paying attention, who then pushed the individual into the path of the of the automated vehicle. So it's it, it wasn't that the automated vehicle deliberately sought out a pedestrian and plowed into them, but it really does show that sort of fuzzy interface point between when humans drive and when technology drives. And the technology still hasn't been fully ironed out to account for all of these difficult to categorize situations that a car is going to encounter when it's out and about on the road. Uh, and so in the absence of a technological solution to this, the California Department of Motor Vehicles has decided we're going to suspend the license for these cruise vehicles to drive without a driver on uh, the streets, uh, in this case in San Francisco, uh, until the company meets certain criteria, proves that it has addressed a lot of the gaps that have come out. And this wasn't just this one accident. There have been a number of accidents where uh, the you know, vehicles have, have been involved again for whatever reason, but just the outcome, the aftermath showed some you know disturbing issues with the technology that still need to be addressed. And I've been saying this for years. You and I have, have been talking about this as well for a while, that you know it, it is nowhere near ready for prime time. And despite what Elon Musk might tell you when he rolls out an update to uh, you know to 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 autopilot on his vehicles um, or you know the full self-driving suite. Um, it is. We are nowhere near what's what we like to call level five, uh, and the technology is still basically glorified cruise control. To expect vehicles to drive themselves without human interve intervention and to be 100% safe, we're not there yet. Nowhere near it. Don't forget to hit our website. We got a great contest going. You want to try and win an iPhone 15? All you have to go. All you have to do is go to getconnectedmedia.com and enter to win. Later on in the program, I'm going to give you a secret word. 
that can uh, get you some extra ballots to hopefully increase your chances of winning this iPhone 15. When we come back from the break, we still have a lot to talk about on today's uh, program. We're going to give you a, a Twitter update. How much is it worth now a year later after Elon Musk uh, bought it? Uh, we'll also be talking about cybercrime, cybercrime and how small businesses can protect themselves. And WeChat. Is that banned in Canada now? You're tuned in to Get Connected. Back after this. You are back with Get Connected. Mike Agarbo here with Carmi Levy today. Don't forget to hit the contest page, getconnectedmedia.com, giving away an iPhone 15 uh, this week. And the contest ends very, very soon. This weekend, in fact. Let's uh, get into Twitter, Carmi. I don't love uh, giving uh, more, I guess, airspace uh, <laughs> to Elon over Twitter. Uh, but, you know, over a year later now, he bought it for $44 billion. Forty-four billion. How much is it worth now, Carmi? Uh, you're gonna love this one, Mike. Nineteen billion dollars. So half. fifty-five. Yeah, less than half. A fifty-five percent drop in a year. Talk about destruction of value. Um, the company they, they they awarded employees equity in the company, and at forty-five dollars per share, uh, The Verge had a look at the documents, and it shows that uh, basically that values the company at nineteen billion dollars, which means that Elon Musk has done a really great job. Uh, you know pile driving the company into the ground in just barely a year celebrating his anniversary last year last week i gotta be surprised i I am surprised sorry carmy that it's even worth that much (laughs) yeah that was my first reaction i was like really where do they where do they come up with 19 billion dollars because the vast majority of their advertisers have absolutely disappeared i look at my feed in x now formerly twitter and i look at the ads that it does have and they're from these really iffy vendors that I would certainly never buy from. My pillow, uh, you know, yeah, <laughs> like in that in that category, yeah. right? Like odious businesses, clearly not credible or legitimate businesses. And so you sort of wonder if all the blue chip, uh, you know, advertisers have gone elsewhere, and they clearly have. Where's this money coming from? So I, I, I do even think that nineteen billion dollars is a bit of a stretch, and I think the number continues to sink. I think that number will will go get even less and less over. T- time simply because uh, they, they don't have anywhere near the advertising revenue they used to. And certainly their subscription revenue is also nowhere near where they want it to be. Uh, and they keep trying to sort of shake things up, add more more features to uh, the premium offering. But I don't think a whole lot of people are biting, uh, aside from the bots and the malevolent actors that have always been Musk's stock and trade and, frankly, his favorite users. Another interesting um uh, I, I guess uh, quote from uh, Elon is saying basically um, Twitter posts or X posts as it is known now with misinformation will be ineligible for revenue share. You know, this, this rubs me the wrong way. It, it rubs me it, the wrong way. Why don't, why don't they just take down the misinformation? Well, they, they don't, right? And anytime they're accused of not taking down the inform- misinformation, they'll trot out some, some stat that says, oh, yeah, we removed a few hundred accounts or a few hundred posts. That's a drop in the ocean, folks. It's nowhere near, uh, you know, r- close to the magnitude of the problem of misinformation across this platform. It is, it's long been known as a center of toxicity. Uh, it's where misinformers go to ply their trade. But certainly under Elon Musk, who has contributed to it by sharing misinformation in his own feed time and again and then not taking it down afterward um so you know he's essentially modeling the behavior of a company that does not know how to behave um and the fact that he's saying 
if anyone uses, if you post something and someone uses the community notes feature to add context to it, you're automatically barred from receiving revenue for that content, which defeats the entire purpose of the community notes uh, process. It's almost like saying, oh, you wrote a Wikipedia article and then somebody modified it because they updated it. Guess what? You're no longer eligible for authorship on that. So it punishes individuals who want to contribute back to the community to add context to a story. And so yet again, um, he is shifting the blame for misinformation from himself and from his team onto end users and essentially punishing them because he isn't able to fix a problem that's been years in the making. He, so he, I guess he's trying to evolve Twitter slash X. Um, he wants it to replace your bank account. I guess he wants to expand what it is. Yeah, he's been harping on this uh, for almost a quarter century. Remember in, in 2000, um, he he, he signed up the website x.com. He bought the x.com domain, which he owns to this day. Um, and it was originally supposed to be an online banking platform. And then he merged it with Cofinity uh, in 2000. And that later evolved into something that we all eventually came to know as PayPal. Uh, and so there's a lot of history here. And he's been talking about online banking, online finance for decades. Uh, and one of the things that he said when he bought Twitter was he wants to turn it into what he calls the everything app that includes banking. So savings, uh, individual payments, loans, debit cards, credit cards, you name it, any form of payment or transaction. He wants it to be handled through that app, similar to what WeChat does in China, it's the one app that you use for everything. He wants to turn what used to be known as Twitter into that app. And last week he uh, was speaking with his uh, employees at an all hands meeting, and he basically said, "If you can't uh, if you can't develop this in a year, uh, it will blow my mind." So he essentially gave his company a year to develop this capability to turn X, formerly Twitter, into an all singing, all dancing, all finance app much like WeChat is in China. Uh, again, I look at it at this and I laugh. All I can think of is I don't trust him to handle my messaging. Would I trust him <laughs> to handle my finances? Uh, I can't speak for anyone else, but for me, not on your life. Well, I guess then it'll be worth $10 billion, the company. <laughs> well, yeah, well, I think you're being optimistic there, Mike. We're going to have to take a break. When we come back, still a lot to talk about here on Get Connected, uh, including protecting your small business from cybercrime. We'll give you some steps on how to do that. And uh, we'll talk about WeChat being banned by the Canadian government. So you're listening to Get Connected here on the Course Radio Network. Back after this. You are back with the program. Mike Agarbo here in studio. We're going to talk uh, cybersecurity and, and cybercrime. And there's some uh, alarming stats out there. Cybercrime has increased over 600% in Canada. That's right, 600% since the start of the pandemic. And as you can imagine, for a lot of uh, small business owners, uh, it's not if, but when they will be impacted by this. 66% uh, of small business owners have had have not had any form of cybersecurity training, and only 30% of small businesses uh, agree with the sentiment of increasing their spending on cybersecurity if it meant securing their business while 53% disagreed on increasing their spending. We've got a great guest on the line now with us. Her name is Aviva Klein. She is with MasterCard. They've recently uh, conducted, conducted some research, which I have been quoting here. I, I know I sound smart, but they actually have done all the, the heavy lifting. Thanks for joining us, Aviva. Thank you so much for having me again, Mike. Nice to see you. Yeah, so th this is these are some alarming stats. Um, 
you know, obviously the world is digital now. We're doing everything online, online, and uh, crime, I guess, follows where the money goes, doesn't it? It sure does. So why did MasterCard do this research and, and why did they focus on small business? You know, I think the small business is a significant segment in Canada. 90% plus of our businesses in Canada are small businesses. Um, and so that's a significant part of the economy. And it's a part of the economy, quite frankly, that's just too big to ignore. So what are some of the, um, the, the vulnerabilities that uh, small businesses are facing? Well, I think, you know, one of the, you mentioned some of the stats before. Um, what we found was that, you know, almost six in 10 small business owners don't have any form of cybersecurity training. Um, and if you couple that with the fact that a lot of small businesses have nothing to do with technology except for selling and having a presence online and conducting business online, that becomes, you know, a very big proportion of our small business economy that just really is not, you know, aware, uh, does not understand what is at stake and what they need to do to prepare themselves. Um, and there, you know, the vulnerabilities can range from weak password um, to, you know, using software that, um, you know, isn't patched to using out-of-date software that doesn't even get patches anymore because um, they're trying to extend the life of some of the investments that they've made. Um, those are the like the biggest sort of vulnerabilities, I would say, that small businesses have at this point. Yeah, it is challenging. You know, as a small business owner myself, you know, we're always trying to save money. And yeah, whenever we can kind of stretch <laughs> the resources there to, yeah. uh, uh, you know, to, to save some money, you know, we do. But um, I, I think, you know, they do have to be aware that if if they are a, a target of cybercrime, I mean, yes, that affects their business, but it also affects their customer, customer base, which, again, uh, could be devastating to the business, depending how much of a, you know, a breach there is, so to speak. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, customers, Canadians have said loud and clear that, um, you know, they want to do business with businesses that take cybersecurity seriously. Um, they have also spoken loud and clear to say that, you know, if there is a cybersecurity incident with a business that they are dealing with, they are looking for open and honest communication around what took place and what's being done in the background, um, you know, to help the consumer, quite frankly, who's been compromised. So what are some of the things at stake if a small business doesn't address, you know, their cybersecurity gaps? I think there's a couple. So I think, you know, obviously just downtime. Um, if you are a victim of a cybersecurity incident, um, you know, you can suffer downtime where you're just not able to run your business. Um, you can lose data, um, which again will lead to downtime. Um, you know, I think there's also sort of the, 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 the upside as well. Um, you know, what we're seeing is that in order for small businesses to do business with big business, these big businesses are requiring small business to come up to a particular 
level um, of cybersecurity protection. And so those small businesses who don't invest in that type of cybersecurity posture won't be able to grow their business into new areas um, like within their own sort of small business growth plan, if that's something that they're interested in doing. So, you know, we do see upside in having good cybersecurity um, as well as just the negative. What are resources available to help small businesses uh, then? There's lots of, I mean, we have, you know, there are a lot of different resources that are available online to help small businesses understand what's at risk, how to measure that risk, and also what to do um, if and when, um, you know, they do suffer a cyber attack. So MasterCard on mastercard.ca, we have our business resource center. Um, it includes a whole area um, around cybersecurity and cybersecurity resiliency. Uh, we also partner with lots of different programs, including the Canadian Federation of Independent Business. Um, we've recently launched a cybersecurity academy with them, um, as well as Digital Main, Main Street. Um, we've also just recently launched an education um, series with them as well. Um, and there's lots of businesses out there who are trying to promote and shine a light on the need for small businesses to um you know, invest in these types of protections and make sure that they are resilient uh, when it comes to digital security and cyber security. That all three levels of government, I would say, also are heavily invested. So it shouldn't be too difficult um, if there is a small business owner um, who's interested in learning more about cybersecurity to find um, education and resources to help them become more aware of the risk and what they need to do to insulate the risk. Well, sounds like there's quite a quite a few resources out there. So really, no excuse not to really kind of dive uh, into that to to protect their business. I mean, listen, small business owners are are busy. They're busy people, um, and so they're stretched. Um, as I'm sure you know, Mike, as a small business owner yourself, um, they're stretched in terms of the budget that they have to invest in um, capabilities and updated software and, and whatnot. But they're also stretched in terms of time. You know, they don't necessarily have, you know, the time and the resources available to you know, note every single system that they have, what devices they have, what software do they have? What is the, you know, patching schedule for that? When is the next release for that? Um, that takes time and not all small businesses have, have the luxury of, of investing in that. I would say definitely, you know, if you are a small business that uses the cloud, that is using software as a service, that has a website, um, you know, you definitely want to spend a little bit of time thinking about what you can do to better protect your business. And I really encourage you, you know, the small business listeners out there to think about it in terms of business risk. Like what would happen if I was not able to, to access my files for the next three days? What would I do? Um, because the, the, the fact is that, you know, more and more businesses are getting hacked um, every day and are being taken down and out of commission for a number of days. And um, it's best to think about these things when 
you know, you're not under duress and you're not panicked. Um, so would really encourage your listeners to, you know, take some time to to think about this and how this would impact their financials of their business, but also the operations of their business. How would they continue to operate if they had a cyber breach? We've been talking with Aviva Klein from MasterCard about cybersecurity when it comes to small business. I want to thank you for joining us today, Aviva. That was uh, amazing. Thank you for having me. I look forward to hopefully seeing you again. When we come back from the break, more tech to talk. Stay tuned. You are back with Get Connected. Mike Yagerbo here with Carmi Levy. Don't forget to hit our contest page this week, getconnectedmedia.com giving away an iPhone 15. It's uh, it's an amazing phone. Got a fantastic camera as well. And uh, stay tuned to the end of the program where I'll give you a secret word to get you some extra entries. Carmi, let's uh, talk about WeChat. Uh, WeChat, a very, very popular messaging app in China. It's also very popular around the world. Uh, maybe just give the, uh, the listeners kind of a, a reader's digest of what it's also doing besides just messaging best way to describe WeChat is it's an everything app. In addition to messaging, you can do audio and video calls, you can buy tickets, you can do your finances, do micropayments, savings, Um, you can make purchases, e-commerce. Basically, it's it's the one app that you need to function. And in fact, most people who have a smartphone in China, 1.2 billion and counting, um, are in fact using this app on a regular basis. You know, daily active user and monthly active user numbers are off the charts. And so, uh, this is the app that, of course, Elon Musk wants to emulate as he evolves what used to be known as Twitter into also an everything app. Essentially, if you delete all the other apps on your phone, this is the one app that you would keep because because you would manage every aspect of your life, bar none. So why is the Canadian government banning it on uh, their government devices? I, I think they've the banned same. TikTok uh, already. Why don't they just ban all of them if they're so concerned? It's a reasonable question because in in February, the government did in fact ban TikTok on government-issued devices for exactly that reason, saying it's a Chinese-owned company. Uh, In TikTok's case, ByteDance. In uh, in WeChat's case, a company called Tencent. Uh, And the data goes to a Chinese headquarters. And of course, there it could potentially be shared with Chinese uh, government officials when they ask for data. That's a, a precondition of doing business in China. And so at the time when TikTok was banned in February, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau called it a first steps, suggesting that there would be more. Here we are eight months later. Now, uh, WeChat is being banned uh, in a similar way, as well as Kaspersky, the security uh, apps uh, that used for antivirus uh, and cybersecurity. Um, So, you know, I I think it continues the TikTok narrative now on another app. And basically, they're just going after apps that are owned by or owned by companies that operate or their headquarters in uh, regions of the world uh, that are known for repression for uh, regimes that are problematic in terms of state-sponsored cyber insecurity, like Russia, like China, uh, potentially Iran and North Korea as well. Um, and and But at the same time, now we're up to three apps that have been banned on government-issued devices. And, you know, there are millions of apps in the Apple, Apple and Google app stores. How many of them uh, come from countries where, uh, you know, we're not quite sure what happens to our data uh, when it crosses that border? We simply don't know. And so I think it makes for a really great headline, but does it really stop our data from flowing to places in the world where we'd rather it not flow? Absolutely not. Uh, and, you know, it, it addresses one very slim aspect of government 
technology-related security, but it really doesn't go beyond that. And let's not hold our breath and, and assume that we've now put up a giant firewall around Canada and we're all better protected. It's not quite that far. It looks like they're also banning uh, the Russian Kaspersky uh, suite of antivirus and IT security uh, apps. Uh, are these bans, are they political in nature to some point? They absolutely are. I mean, I think it's it's sending a message, Canada sending a message to the regimes in both China and Russia. We're aware that you're using technology to advance your geopolitical aims, and we are going to put limits on how that technology is used in Canada. Notably, uh, you and I and all of our listeners can still happily go to any app store and download these apps and use them. Uh, in announcing the ban on government-issued devices, uh, Treasury Board President Anita Anand said, it's up to Canadians to decide if they want to continue to use these apps personally. So it doesn't really protect Canada. It simply puts a limit on government-issued devices. But what about a government employee who uses a personal-owned device uh, along and loads both personal apps as well as government apps on their device to do government work? Uh, the ban doesn't specifically talk about that either. So that's problematic because this app can now exist on devices that aren't covered by this government ban. So there are enough holes in here to sink a warship. Uh, and it ultimately isn't going to protect us. It really is just a political message to China and Russia. We're watching you. We don't like the way that you do cyber business, and we really wish you would stop. Are there other targets out there that you can see right now? Right now, no. Um, I mean, and, and quite frankly, I think it's all almost like a game of whack-a-mole. You can go through the app store with its millions of apps and you can identify the country of origin on each one, but you're taking it on faith that they are stating, they're stating up front and they're being uh, legitimate and truthful about where these apps are originating. So what if they say that it, it originates in, say, North Africa, but in reality it's funded by a, a Russian program to develop Russian code? We'll never know. And Apple and Google certainly aren't adjudicated certainly aren't investigating apps that closely uh, or that thoroughly before they grant them access to the app store. So, uh, you know, we're never going to get to a point where these kinds of app bans appreciably increase security, either at a government or a personal level. Uh, and I think we're fooling ourselves if we think that this will have any kind of impact long term. Is there a danger that uh, eventually China is going to strike back uh, on other tech areas, for example, with Apple and Tesla. I mean, China is a huge market for them, you know, over a billion people buying, uh, you know, products. Uh, you know, it's one of the largest markets for uh, Apple out there. Tesla continues to invest in that country as well, uh, and, you know, selling lots of cars there. Could there be uh, a chance down the road that China would just say, you know what, we're banning all iPhones in China. I think it's inev inevitable that we get to a point where the government of China takes, uh, you know, action against um, North American, European and other Western sources of this kind of action as well. In other words, uh, uh, you know, I think companies like Apple are already preparing for this inevitability. Apple has started making iPhones in Vietnam, in India. They're aggressively setting up manufacturing facilities and supply chain arrangements in countries outside of China so that they can shift 
uh, production and distribution uh, away from mainland China in the event that they need to. Uh, Tesla is is somewhat different story because there is such high demand for its vehicles in China, and they continue to go pedal to the metal in terms of setting up new production facilities in China as well as battery facilities in China. So, I mean, I think at some point, if the Chinese government decides to shut Tesla down entirely, Tesla's probably a lot more exposed right now than Apple or any other uh, other technology company. Uh, but I think that's definitely on the horizon. And I think if you're an American company doing business there, you're certainly at that kind of geopolitical risk and you really should be planning contingency. Apple is. I don't really, don't really think Tesla is. Does China need the West, though, when it comes to, you know, technology? Can, can uh, they make th- this, this move today? Well, it's interesting. Bit by bit, they keep developing their own technology. So, for example, for years, when China wanted to develop its own indigenous fighter planes, it would simply copy, license copy, you know, without permission from Russia. And now if you look at most of China's fighter jets, they look exactly like their Russian counterparts, even though and because they bought a few of them and then they reverse engineered them. But in many cases, the engines aren't homegrown. They've had to develop them and they're just starting now to bring them online. And so China has very rapidly industrialized itself and has has gone from not you know, being heavily reliant on the West for key technologies in the tech space, so fundamental chip designs and things like that, now to the point that they can replicate the chips, they can replicate the graphic processing units, they can replicate the operating systems, and they're not, not as reliant on Western technology now as they were even a couple of years ago. And that ramp up has been historically fast. Uh, and so very soon they will be able to cut those cords entirely. Right now they're still somewhat reliant, but they're definitely heading in the, in the direction where at some point they can essentially tell the West, sorry, we can just go from go on our own from this point forward. We talking months, years? Uh, you know, in some sectors, months, uh, for example, graphic processing units, they're already starting to develop their own first ones. Are they comparable with what equivalent Western designs? Probably not. Um, but, you know, that's version one, version two and version three. Uh, it might very well be a different story. And China has shown an ability to very rapidly industrialize itself, very rapidly develop technological uh, capabilities uh, that might have taken decades in the West. In China's case, they're taking years. Um, so, you know, we will hear over the course of the next number of months of breakthroughs in specific areas. So jet engines, chip design, software design, data center technology, networking technology, um, software development, uh, where you know indigenous capabilities in China rapidly take over those that they previously had to bring in or import. That's all the time we have left for Get Connected. Don't forget to enter our contest at www.getconnectedmedia.com. Giving away an iPhone 15. And the secret word this week for extra ballots is cybercrime. All one word, cybercrime. Go to the website, getconnectedmedia.com, and enter to win. We will see you again next time.